Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. Hello, I am Professor Robert E.G. Black, host of, among other shows, Annihilation Minute, looking at the 2018 science fiction film Annihilation, one minute per episode, one episode per week. I will be your host for Minute 98. I place a photograph of my uncle on my computer desktop, which means I learned to ignore it. He stands by a tank, helmet tilting to his right, bootlaces tightened as if stitching together a wound. Alive, the hand brings up a cigarette we won't see him taste. Last night I smoked one on the steps outside my barn apartment. A promise I broke myself. He promised himself he wouldn't and did. I smell my fingers and I am smelling his. Hands of smoke and gunpowder. Hands that promised they wouldn't, but did. This album is a stop loss, by a dim lantern, or in the latrine. He flips through it. He looks at himself, looking nearly as he does, closest to himself then, as he could be, just learning how to lean into his new body. He suspends there, by standing order, a spreading fire in his chest, his groin. He is on stage, for us to see him. See him? He stands in the noontime sun. Your whole body in a photo. Your whole body sitting on a crate, pressing your eye socket to the viewfinder of a bazooka, crouched as you balance the metal tube on your shoulder. In one, you guide a belt of ammo into the untiring weapon, proud, your elbow out as if, mid-waltz, your frame strong and lightly supporting the gun, a kind of smile ruining the picture. You're posing, you're scared, a body falls and you learn to step over. A loosened head, you begin to appreciate the heft of your boot soles, how they propel you, how they can kick in a face, the collapse of a canopy bed in an aerial bombardment, mosquito netting doused, and napalm cheekbones fragile, those moth wings beneath the heel, you tighten your laces until they hold together for a capable man. Whatever reigns, the weight of your feet swings you forward. Goose-stepping pendulums, a body less and less yours, the body God knows, is not what makes you anyway. So the hands that said they never would begin finding grenade pins around their fingers begin flipping through this album with soot under their nails. You were not ready, but they issued the shovel and the rifle when you dug, but to watch you sitting there between the sandbags, but to watch the sand spilling out the bullet hole, but what did they expect? But what did they really think a sheet of metal could prevent? But I sat rolling little ears of pasta off my thumb like helmets. But it was not a table of fallen men. But my hand registered fatigue. But the men in fatigues were tired of sleeping in shifts. But you snuck into town and dialed home until you wrote your fingers were tired. But the code for Shiraz was down. But all of Shiraz was down. But the sheet lighting above the Ferris wheel of rusted bolts. But I am sure they are all right, you wrote. Well, to reassure yourself. But the wind like an old mouth shaking the unnamed evergreen outside my window. But what I mean is, I'd like very much to talk a bit. Hello. Solmash Sharif, Personal Effects We left Al at his desk at the Corn Belt Bank. He just asked John Novak, a former Navy man, a CB, what kind of collateral he has. Novak wants a loan to buy some property to start a farm. Except a farm is simplifying things to something else than Cantor's novel. Novak grows flowers, and he wants to expand. John told about his plans, the hotbed frames, yes, glass, 
He knew where he could find the glass he wanted. Yes, new greenhouse, too. And water pipes, another pump, yes. Second hand, but still the pipes were good. The well worked fine. It didn't cost too much. He'd built a little office, too, right by the driveway, so the customers would not be trooping through his house. Al has a job to do, and is only now about to figure out how to do it. It could not be said that it was wine which produced this sadness, for in truth he only drank to combat the sadness, which wine, however, as we have said, rendered still darker. This excess of bilious humor could not be attributed to play, for unlike Porthos, who accompanied the variations of chance with songs or oaths, Athos, when he won, remained as unmoved as when he lost. He had been known in the circle of the musketeers to win in one night three thousand pistoles, to lose them even to the gold-embroidered belt for gala days, when all the again with the addition of a hundred louis, without his beautiful eyebrow being heightened or lowered half a line, without his hands losing their pearly hue, without his conversation, which was cheerful that evening, ceasing to be calm and agreeable. For the present he had no anxiety. He shrugged his shoulders when people spoke of the future. His secret then was in the past, as had often been vaguely said to D'Artagnan. This mysterious shade, spread over his whole person, rendered still more interesting the man whose eyes or mouth, even in the most complete intoxication, had never revealed anything, however skillfully questions had been put to him. Novak. The point, point is, is, I haven't, haven't got, got any property. property. That's, That's why I want, I want the loan, so, so I can get, get the property. property. Al turns his head at this vicious cycle, away from Novak and toward camera. He puts his left hand to his brow, thinking. Al, I see. No collateral. That, that makes things difficult. Novak, I'm a good farmer, Mr. Stevenson. Why, even during the war, I kept my hand in. Al turns back to Novak. I used to spend my spare time down on those little islands, working truck gardens, so my outfit could have fresh tomatoes and green corn and all that. And before the war, I was a sharecropper, like my father before me. And now, I feel I'd like to have a little piece of my own to work. Al, you like to grow things, eh? Novak, yes, sir. Al doesn't correct him, and Novak is too busy talking to notice his own mistake, calling Al, sir. Laura Shum explains on History.com, 23rd May, 2014, quote, On January 30th, 1942, the Emergency Price Control Act granted the Office of Price Administration OPA, the authority to set price limits and ration food and other commodities in order to discourage hoarding and ensure the equitable distribution of scarce resources. By the spring, Americans were unable to purchase sugar without government-issued food coupons. Vouchers for coffee were introduced in November, and by March of 1943, meat, cheese, fats, canned fish, canned milk, and other processed foods were added to the list of rationed provisions. Every American was entitled to a series of war ration books filled with stamps that could be used to buy restricted items, along with payment. And within weeks of the first issuance, more than 91% of the U.S. population had registered to receive them. The OPA allotted a certain amount of points to each food item based on its availability, and customers were allowed to use 48 blue points to buy canned, bottled, or dried foods, and 64 red points to buy meat, fish, and dairy each month, that is, if the items were in stock at the market. Due to changes in the supply and demand of various goods, the OPA periodically adjusted point values, which often further complicated an already complex system that required home cooks to plan well in advance to prepare meals. Despite the fact that ration books were explicitly intended for the sole use by the named recipient, a barter system developed whereby people traded one type of stamp for another, and black markets began cropping up all over the country, in which forged ration stamps or stolen items were illegally resold. By the end of the war, 
Restrictions on processed foods and other goods like gasoline and fuel oil were lifted, but the rationing of sugar remained in effect until 1947. Novak continued, And with the food shortage all over the world, it seems to me that farming is about the most important work there is. I mean, well, but don't you think so, Mr. Stevenson? Al looks at his desk again, thinking before answering. Al, yes. In Cantor's novel, Al quits the bank after he's reprimanded over Novak's loan. The end of Al's story is not that he keeps on drinking and gives his big subversive speech at the club. No, he quits, and then Novak comes by Al's house one day, and he brings with him some flowers. And together they plant them. And Al tells Novak how he quit his job at the bank. So I suppose that you will take another job somewhere. Well, I don't know just what, said Al. If anyone's got money, Novak said. I guess he'd think that it was nice to rest a while and not do anything. I know I felt that way when I came back. But hell, I couldn't leave the stuff alone. This kind of stuff, said Stevenson. I guess that I could never leave alone. And then a notion seemed to strike him. So importantly, and quaintly, tenderly, and sane. So natural, so pleasing all in one. He stood and grinned. He looked at Novak. Red was in his ears. And underneath the skin of his dark face the grim, hard face that wasn't grim when you looked at the wetted edges of his eyes. Look here, said Stevenson, and all his words were tumbled on his tongue. Look here, I wonder if you ever thought, I mean, well, I don't know so much about a nursery, but still you're thinking of expanding. I could bring a little dough, as much as you might need. Would you consider me? I mean, a partnership? They agree to think about it, but it feels like an agreement to go ahead. Each shook the other's hand, and well, and liked the crush of bone, and muscle, flesh, and earth, and mold, and dew, and moisture, living blood, of soil exchanged between them, mingling when each shook the other's hand. Novak, you see, Mr. Mr. Stevenson, I don't feel this is asking the bank for a handout. Al looks at Novak again. I feel it's my right. That is where we leave John Novak, a man who grows flowers and needs a little help to make his business his own, and Al Stevenson, a man who lends money because it was the job offered when he returned. Thank you for listening. I have been Professor Robert E.G. Black. Among my various shows, you can find me as the host of Annihilation Minute, taking an in-depth look at the science fiction film Annihilation, with behind-the-scenes details, scientific research, notes from the novel, and other works, including The Odyssey. You can find Annihilation Minute on all the obvious podcatchers and on social media. Or you can go to lemmingdrops.com for links for that show and all of my other shows, my guest spots, my Groundhog Day Project blog, and more. You can find the Best Minutes podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, thebestminutes.com. Or follow the show on social media at Butch's Place, the Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe, on Facebook, and on Twitter at The Best Minutes. Please join me here next time on the Best Minutes podcast. Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.